Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Paul Vogue, one of the founders and CEO of Ourobora. Ourobora is a sparkling water made from real herbs, fruits, and flowers for earthly tastes and heavenly feelings. Their flavors are definitely one of a kind and different, like lavender cucumber, cactus rose, peppermint watermelon. I was a bit skeptical at first when I tried it, but I must say I loved it. My personal favorite is lemongrass coconut. Paul has a pretty fascinating story in how he started and his approach to building a sparkling water company without their flavors that are delicious. Without further ado, here's Paul. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing well. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Just, you know, drinking my cactus rose or a Bora. It's great for a Monday, you know? You know what? I feel that's true. Cactus Rose is a good Monday flavor. There's very few things you can say that about, but that'll get you out of the Monday funk for sure. Absolutely. Also chatting with you will definitely get me out of the Monday funk, Paul. Uh, my mom would disagree, but I'll take the compliment. So let's start from the very beginning. What was, define your relationship with Sparkling Water before you ended up starting a Sparkling Water company? Hey, that was actually mistakenly a good segue. So I, I grew up with a, a mom that did not allow us to drink soda. I was on the sparkling water kick, I'll say earlier than most, probably, you know, five, six, seven years old. As a result, when I got my first couple of jobs after college, we had that fully stocked pantry that you're probably familiar with. And we had a virtually unlimited, you know, LaCroix, Waterloo, Polar, you name it. And there's an old saying in, you know, white collar uh, jobs is if you want to raise, just, you know, drink or eat more from the pantry. So I did just that. I was drinking probably eight to 10 cans of LaCroix a day at the peak. And then I would come home and drink more at home, often with a soda stream that we had at the house. So that, that was myself and my wife Maddie's experience with sparkling water. Both grew up in homes that didn't have soda and both kind of got addicted to it in our early 20s. Um, as a result, bought that soda stream and started making weird, wild, whimsical flavors. So that, that is the background of Ouroboro, was Maddie and I just messing around with our soda stream in the kitchen. Why did you decide to mess around with making crazy flavors? What was maybe, and how did that turn into maybe like an aha moment for a business? Yeah, I, I would say, so at the, back to the office, you know, it seemed to me the sparkling water was by far the most popular item in terms of velocity, in terms of how many units everyone in the office was drinking a day, but definitely the least popular in terms of quality, i.e. we're all drinking this thing, but none of us like it. And that felt like a very weird kind of dichotomy to me. As a result, I thought, okay, it seems like there's a few reasons people don't like sparkling water. One, they get really bored of it. If you're drinking eight to 10 cans a day, like Pomplamoose is only gonna cut it for so many months. And two, a lot of the citric acid and other ingredients that are in typical sparkling waters just feels kind of artificial, soda-ish, almost salty. Throw in that these brands are totally marketed as commodities. So they're each kind of as drab as the next. And it, it is sparkling water. You know, the, the phrase even itself sounds like a commodity. So it felt like, okay, we can use differentiated flavors, differentiated ingredients, and have a differentiated brand. And that would hopefully be the recipe for success. In that same pantry, and I say this sentence all the time, we had kettle potato chips and Jenny's ice cream and Justin's peanut butter. And it seemed like all of those are artisanal options in what used to be commodity categories. Could we do the same thing to sparkling water? So that was the challenge. That was a bit of the aha moment at work. And then 
got to work, you know, making what we thought would be innovative, interesting flavors. That's cool. So you were seeking inspiration from what's happening in other categories, building out differentiated products, unique flavors, and bringing all of that to sparkling water. For sure. Yeah. I, I On the ice cream front, I'll, I'll worth mentioning, my sister Emily is actually an ice cream entrepreneur. She has an ice cream parlor in uh, Encinitas, California. And she has always done very weird, whimsical, fun ice cream flavors. So I, I mentioned Jenny's for pints, or you know, if you're in the East Coast, it might be Van Leeuwen's. On the West Coast, it might be Salt and Straw. If you're in San Diego, it might be JoJo's Creamery. But all that to say, that was definitely the inspiration of, can we take ingredients that you know from a different medium and bring them to the fast-growing sparkling water category? So when you and Maddie are, I'd imagine, in your kitchen, trying out all these kind of funky flavors, when did you actually think about doing maybe some type of market research or, you know, chatting with friends and see what they thought? You know, what kind of went into your heads as you began to take this more seriously? We started where a lot of entrepreneurs start, where you kind of just beg your friends to drink gross things and slowly they get better. Um, so if you're a friend of mine living in Denver, Colorado in 2019, thank you. To, to start, I think it was 78. So 78, not friends, I don't have 78 friends, but 78 either friends or friends of friends or friends of friends of friends living in Denver. And I kind of forced all of them to drink all of these concoctions. And we started with, I think, 17 flavors and whittled it down to five that people felt really strongly about. That was the beginning. And that was, you know, we paid those people a very small stipend, gave them free pizza, invited them over, and interviewed as many of them as possible. So that was the initial R&D. Of course, we then had like more firm data of, okay, the category is really big. It's growing in double-digit numbers for 16 straight years. There seems to be room at the premium end of the aisle. All of those things help too. But the initial research in quotes was, let's make as many people as possible drink this stuff we made in our kitchen. How also, even before when you're, I guess, concocting all these you know, differentiated flavors, because you do combine flavors, right? Like in Cactus Rose, you like combine, you know, how did you think through different combinations even that would actually lead to then, you know, that's the flavor? Yeah, I would say... Forgive the baseball analogy, but it seems like maybe half of how I communicate. We didn't want any like fastballs down the middle, um, but there's only like so many curveballs you can have as well. So I'll say like peppermint watermelon, we knew, okay, everyone is familiar with both of these ingredients. You may have even had kind of a mint melon salad before in your life. Basil berry, you're probably familiar with both of those ingredients. Lavender cucumber, you're probably familiar with both of those ingredients. And then on the far fringe, was probably cactus, rose, and lemongrass coconut. If you live on the West Coast, you're probably more familiar with lemongrass and prickly pear. Elsewhere in the country, not so much. So when we launched, we kind of felt like, okay, we have a mix of things that we think will immediately be popular and not too intimidating, but not so normal as to kind of fit in with the rest of the crowd, which is, I'll say, constantly a struggle here. Can we be different without being intimidating, but not so normal that it doesn't feel like Ourobora? What of the flavors were you most surprised by that maybe people loved or people didn't love? So I just mentioned Cactus Rose. You're drinking Cactus Rose. I will say I was the biggest Cactus Rose skeptic out there. And I already mentioned to you, it's our bestseller. In some stores, it's our bestseller, not by a small margin. I assumed no one would like it. Not because I didn't like it. I actually loved it. Mostly because, hey, how many people have actually had? I had had a prickly pear margarita, but it was like kind of recent. How many people enjoy drinking Rose? I know that Rose can be a very polarizing ingredient, but I've been shocked. So I would say... During the night with the 78 people, that was really shocking. And every day since then, for the last nearly three years, it's, it surprised me each and every morning. I'll say maybe my favorite flavor that got just totally destroyed in that 
R&D was, uh, it was a birch flavor. I love root beer. I grew up loving root beer. I mentioned I couldn't really have sodas. So you can imagine how hard I went at birthday parties when they had root beer present. Had to sneak in a few root beers. Yeah, I had to sneak in a, a Barks or A&W here and there. Birch, the biggest negative is people are like, hey, this tastes like root beer when you're at the machine and it's almost out of syrup. Like it's just like a watered down root beer. So, which for me, I'm like, hey, I'll take root beer, watered down, distillated. You take it, I'll drink it. So anyway, that the birch flavor died, uh, got left on the cutting room floor. That makes a lot of sense. How many flavors were you thinking about producing? Yeah, we, we got advice to launch with somewhere between three to five. You know, two seemed like too few, six seemed like too many. So we went with five. We had those five flavors. I, I joke about this now, Mike. I, I live in San Francisco today. I moved here in 2019, kind of right as we launched. But for those initial months in the summer of 2019, when all this was getting developed, I'll say like the beginning of 2019 up to like August before we had product in hand, I was living outside of Boulder, Colorado, which I now know is like living in Hollywood and wanting to be a stunt double. Like you're just in the perfect place. At the time, I was just wandering around Boulder so surprised that everyone was so helpful. I'd ask someone, hey, I need someone to sell me cans. I need a co-packer. I need a food scientist. I need someone to help me get lavender. And every time I was getting helpful connections and I thought, man, this entrepreneurship thing is so easy. Like you can just ask someone and they'll introduce you to someone. Now I realize, oh, I was living outside of Boulder, Colorado, of course. So the next step was, can we get a food scientist to make sure that our ingredients are safe and they'll be able to scale them up? Can we get someone to sell us cans so we can do our first production run? And then finally, can we find the right co-packer? And just to give you a sense of how central Boulder is in this ecosystem, once we had those three parts, food scientist, co-packer, person to sell cans, they are all in the same zip code, six and a half minutes away from one another. So that's how we started this thing in the summer of 2019. That's amazing. That's awesome. It was awesome. Yes. After you had the food scientists and you were starting to produce cans, and I guess you had cans in hand in, in August, how did you think about distribution and getting into stores? Those first cans in hand, I was actually only, almost exclusively just giving to one particular store. It was actually a, a grocery store called Lever's Locavore. It was at the corner of my block in Denver, and we hadn't yet moved to California. I gave every can we kind of made ourselves to them. In October of that year, there was a big trade show in Boulder called the Boulder Pitch Slam, and there was an innovation showcase. And I had read two books that were really helpful, Mark Rampola, the founder of Zico Coconut Water's book, and Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea's book. And both kind of suggested, hey, trade shows are a great way to kind of prove the concept. You know, you don't just get consumers, you get like trade people, retailers, distributors, et cetera. If they're interested, then it's a pretty good likelihood that consumers will be as well. And I went to that trade show. We did our first kind of mini production run that morning, which was myself and a 16-year-old named Colin. Thank you, Colin, if you're listening to this. Uh, we, we used this small little machine at a co-packing facility, which I had the gall to ask the co-packer if he would do a run of a thousand cans for me. And the guy was polite enough to say like, uh, absolutely not, but you can use my machine if you'd like. Um, so we used this machine, showed up to the trade show with a thousand cans, and luckily we got some good traction that evening. But Maddie and I, Maddie uh, was in California at the job that she had just been recruited to go do, which is why we moved. And we had kind of thought, okay, if this works, we're off to the races and we'll swipe our credit card and do this first co-packing run. And if at the trade show, everyone's like, hey man, this lemongrass coconut is way too out there. I'll wash my hands of this and move on with my life and see what happens. At the trade show, there were a lot of great buyers and a lot of good trade people. And I mentioned it was in Boulder. So these were like people that I, at that point now knew to trust. The best was a Whole Foods buyer that was at the show who I then followed up with samples the next day by kind of white lying my way into her office, dropping off samples. And then we got our first authorization from Whole Foods. And that was like, you know, maybe the maybe one of the best days still so far doing this is 
Whole Foods is interested, then Whole Foods said yes, then Whole Foods sent an authorization. And yeah, at that point I'd already quit my job. We, we swiped our credit card in the first real production run. So to that first co-packer, he ended up you know, ma making it worth it for me to use his machine with Colin. And that was kind of the beginning. That was the end of 2019 and we were off to the races. So when did you, when did you get into Whole Foods? We got authorized at Whole Foods right at the end of 2019 for a March of 2020 reset. As you can imagine, that March of 2020 reset was pushed back a few times due to COVID. But luckily, I had the email that I like printed out and kept in my Subaru. So when I was driving around the Bay Area, dropping off samples at all of the natural food stores up here, they'd say, hey, what stores are you in? And I'd say, well, maybe you'd like to see this authorization letter from Whole Foods. And I got to tell you, if you're right now listening to this and you walk into stores with samples, if you have an authorization from Whole Foods, I think you'll find your batting average goes from like 150 to 400. Immediately, people are way more interested. So I used that Whole Foods authorization until it was like frayed and brittle on the sides. And that probably got us into, I don't know, 200 stores from January of 2020 until like July of 2020. And in July, we finally hit the shelves of that first Whole Foods region. Got it. And so and so January, that's when you started, um, when you were... When you moved to uh, San Francisco, that's when you started just kind of going door to door and just selling and trying to get in product in stores. Exactly. Selling, getting to know managers, store employees, et cetera, and kind of just being a pest, to be frank, until they'd finally say yes. So that's certainly how we got the first few stores. It was not because they liked our data or our product or anything. It was just, hey, this guy's annoying us. So let's just like put his stuff on the shelf so he goes away. Do you have any advice for brands where it's just, you know, that hustle? to get into retailers and into stores in terms of maybe little things you might have like picked up along the way? Certainly, you can start with a local distributor, but often local distributors, you know, distributors want the lowest risk possible because they're going to put in a PO and for all they know, you're going to disappear and move to Costa Rica and they're never going to hear from you again. So as a result, anything to lower their risk is best. So for us, we had a distributor say, hey, if you show up with 50 stores that are all on our list of stores, like we're gonna say yes and take your product. So I took their list and once I had 50 stores, went back to the distributor and said, hey, I'm delivering this amount of product to these 50 stores every week for the last six weeks, will you say yes? And that got us the yes. So my biggest piece of advice is, hey, distributors are not gonna do you any favors. You need to lower the risk such that they'll take the plunge and give you the first PO. So for us, that was a small distributor here in the Bay Area called Rock Island. Uh, they distribute a lot of things, mostly eggs, but a few beverages. They gave me their list. We went out and got to 50 stores. In terms of advice for dealing with like managers or store employees, they are getting bombarded by people like us, but like entrepreneurs that show up with little bags of granola or muffins or cookies or sparkling water or whatever it is. And it felt like what was the best thing was just making a relationship. Don't be discouraged by the no's. That's just like the whole, that's what all of this is. It's a whole lot of no's and a couple of yeses. Ouroboros, where does the name come from? We knew we were using these hippie-ish ingredients between lavender and lemongrass and basil, a lot of herbal ingredients. So we loved the word aura. As a result, we felt like it had a connotation of kind of hippie, earth-centric, you know, laid-back feelings. And unfortunately, we couldn't trademark the word aura. I was reading a book on marketing at the time that talked a lot about the power of rhyming. And we kind of knew, hey, to start, you're not in that many stores, so people are going to see your product maybe a couple times a year. The least you can do is be memorable, both with packaging and with a name. And there were a lot of rhymes that we loved, like that rhymed with aura. And Ouroboros fit the bill for a few reasons. One, we loved just the way it sounds right off the tongue. Two, we loved that Aurora Borealis is in your mind as an Earth-centric term for the Northern Lights. And then finally, there was a tongue-in-cheek aspect of it of, hey, water companies like naming themselves after rivers and valleys and mountains and islands. And we liked that, okay, it almost sounds like Bora Bora as well. So all those things combined made it for a name we were really excited about. 
That's cool. And in terms of your packaging, did you do your packaging yourself, or like, how, or or did you consult with like a, a professional? Yeah. Uh, so first off, I married well. Uh, my wife Maddie is is an extreme creative. You know that would be clear to you the moment you met her. She had like a very strong vision of okay. I mentioned earlier about the flavors. We wanted them to be like peculiar, but interesting, and you know delightful. Could we have the can be as peculiar but delightful as the flavors inside them? And this isn't this isn't a new thing. You know, craft beer probably did this 15 years ago. We feel like something similar is happening and ready to drink right now. So Maddie had this idea for a big kind of surreal experience of you know where strawberries are the size of Escalades and we have these creatures running around uh, in this kind of fake version of Earth. She and I worked with a company called Moxie Sozo. They're an agency in Boulder, Colorado. Highly recommend them. It was an awesome experience. I don't know. At one point, we were probably their least favorite client because it was a lot of a lot of back and forth between Maddie and myself and them of revisions on revisions on revisions to make something that we think is like truly different. And hopefully at 10 feet from the shelf, you think, what is that can fourth from the left? I need to go grab it. What were some of the elements that you think in your can that really makes it pop? Hmm. I would say, what is the can shape itself? So we're using a 12-ounce sleek can. Uh, if you're listening to this, Red Bull is probably the most popular version of this can, which is a little unusual in sparkling water. Both LaCroix, Polar, Waterloo, you name the competitor, they're either in a plastic bottle like Perrier or San Pellegrino, or they're in a 12-ounce squat can, i.e. What you, what you buy traditional Coca-Cola in. I'm holding a sleek can right now. The second was... I would say the intricacy of the design. In fact, Andrea from Snackshot talks about this a lot. There's like a pendulum in brands where we go to simplistic and you could even call it blanding. Bloomberg did an amazing article on blanding where so many direct-to-consumer or consumer products went to simple sans serif fonts, simple, as few colors as possible, as few shapes as possible. Let's make it look like Casper or Warby Parker or you you name the buzzy D2C brand of yesteryear. We wanted to go the opposite way of, okay, if most sparkling water is being branded as a commodity and most new consumer products are being blanded as a commodity, let's go the opposite way and just make this so intricate that hopefully consumers think, whoa, that is so eye-grabbing. What is happening on this can? And honestly, our hope was before you even read that it's a sparkling water, I would love for you to be endeared by the sloth, you know, swinging a vine into the cucumber canoe and then realize, oh, okay, I'm holding an herbal sparkling water. Let me give it a try. How did you get creative during COVID um, in terms of, since you obviously couldn't sample in source? Gosh, you know, I, I would say this is no longer true, but there was a time where we were two years in and I had done fewer than seven sampling events, which like most entrepreneurs in this business, you know, that number is 100, 200 times at that point. So yeah, we could not sample in the stores. Fortunately, we have a a cheaper product where in some instances we were allowed to give full can samples of, hey, take this entire can and let me know what you think. But we got creative. Some of it was social ads for people going to our website, for people going to specific stores we did social ads. Some of it was working with the actual grocery managers to say, hey, if we do a two for $3 promotion, can we get an end cap by the counter? And then some of it was good old couponing of, hey, we can't do free samples, but we can slap a dollar off coupon on the can and see what people think. So we got as creative as possible. In some instances, it was me standing in the parking lot, even with a sign uh, and saying, hey, try this product. Let me know what you think. And I'll hand you a dollar bill to get your feedback. So long way of saying, short of sampling, we did anything and everything to get people to, you know, people always say liquid to lips to get to drive trial. I know we've talked a bit about how your approach for brand in the physical world with your label, which I love, and your cans just 
looking very unique and different. For online, I'd imagine it can be maybe tough to maybe capture that, or you have to obviously think differently. How did you approach your your marketing and branding um, from an online perspective? Yeah, Maddie always said, how do we get people to taste with their eyes? When it's just water, you know, it's one thing if you're if you're selling a chocolate chip cookie, like I can film slow-mo shots of me breaking up a warm chocolate chip cookie all day. And like you and I would probably click and order it. There's only so much you can communicate in pouring what looks to be just this standard glass of sparkling water. So we had to get out there for sure and do a variety of things. Some of it was leaning into our ingredients, some of it was leaning into a lot of influencer content of people who had tried the product, you know filming reviews and sending them in. Um, but all that to say, we threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And we got a huge bonus worth noting that we were we aired on Shark Tank in January of 2021, which I guess at that point, that was nine months into the pandemic. And that was a huge boost in online sales and email addresses and kind of bottom of funnel marketing shortly thereafter. So all that to say at the beginning, you know, we didn't do our first online advertisement until right at the end of 2020, right before we knew we were airing on Shark Tank. And that was sort of the beginning of this big push for e-com. For online ads to specific stores for retail, you know, I still don't feel like we have that totally figured out to be transparent. Uh, I'll say with some retailers, yeah, we film videos of like human beings walking into aisle three and grabbing the product. Whether that works or doesn't work, you know, we can debate on a later day. What were your biggest learnings um, in 2020? I know you mentioned when you were kind of traveling back and forth between Austin and uh, San Francisco. What were your biggest learnings through the the SKU accelerator? Yeah, SKU's awesome. I learned about SKU actually before even leaving my prior job from my old boss. He had some connection where he said, hey, I, I had a friend recently do this program. Maybe you should check it out. So for us, I would say I was just a... a, a a total idiot. In some ways, I still am, but I was I was just so naive to the industry. I mean, I already told you the anecdote about not knowing that Boulder is like a hub of natural products. So that that alone shows my naivete. I would say SKU is most helpful in three ways. One, kind of the textbook knowledge of what is a chargeback, what's an off invoice period, how do you manage trade spend, what should net percentage of you know freight be as a percentage of net revenue, like all of these terms and nomenclature and knowledge that you would have if you worked at Procter & Gamble or General Mills right after college, as so many people do, but I just didn't do that. The second was operational know-how. I'll say like more tactically how to do this. So which distributor do you work with? How should you price these specific products? FOB or delivered for all sorts of things. And then probably the final and third piece was just introducing me to so many people in the industry. Like I'll say, Christine May and Pat Muldoon and Clayton Christopher are our three folks that I met during SKU and I've I've spoken to all three of those individuals in the last 72 hours. So it has been a, a huge help to getting to know the industry. And of course, it's pretty small. So all of them know a ton of other people to introduce me to. So those were the three big learnings. I would highly recommend it, particularly for entrepreneurs that just feel like they, they don't know enough about this industry to know where to start. That's incredible. I mean, Clayton, I'm sure, also provides so much value with, obviously, he builds up Waterloo, uh, sparkling water. So that must be just incredible to to obviously have him um, as a mentor or just someone that, that you can kind of just ask his advice for. Oh, the three people I've just named have probably cumulatively sold, I don't know, a uh, billion dollars worth of beverages. So that certainly helps. It, it doesn't hurt our odds. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. What has been the hardest part, you know, fundraising as a beverage brand? Gosh, I'll say in each fundraise, some, some high percentage of investors are just category anti-beverage. Like, there's nothing you can do. We're against this category. Doesn't matter if you're Coca-Cola or Pepsi. We're not interested. 
So for us at the beginning, you know, those comments would come in the fact of like, hey, you know, you're, you're differentiated, but not that differentiated. Or, hey, your gross margin is okay, but it needs to be great. And obviously, over the course of the last two years, since that first seed fundraise, we've made, made huge strides. You know, I'm happy to say now we have a gross margin that is right up there with some of the biggest beverage companies in the world. We have a velocity that is right up there with some of the fastest moving sparkling waters in the country. We have a product whose, you know, uh, gross margin profile and contribution margin profile is leagues ahead a lot of much larger beverage companies. And I'll say some of that comes down to investors are interested in beverage either because they've already invested in a beverage or they haven't and they love that there are these big returns, i.e. beverages get bought for a higher multiple on revenue by Nestle, Pepsi, Coke, Dr. Pepper, Keurig um, at the end of this growth curve. So for us, I think we've had a couple of things working for us in that, yes, we're able to have a better gross margin because we're not we're not using like protein-based ingredients that are more expensive. It's mostly water. For Velocity, luckily, people like our product and seem to be telling their friends. And for just capital intensity, like we've, we've been as capital intensive as possible in beverage. I think in particular, investors probably lately have seen, yeah, like Liquid Death just raised, I don't know, $100 million or something, something in that ballpark. And there's a lot of other big beverage companies I could name that have raised just huge, huge rounds of funding. I mean, rounds of funding that are probably an order of magnitude higher than I could even imagine having. Like, I don't even know what I would do with the money if given to us. So I think there's a lot of reasons investors don't like beverage. Capital intensity is definitely the number one reason. I think our claim in a lot of these fundraising rounds has been, hey, we're not as capital intensive as a lot of these other beverages, and our velocity is better than a lot of these other beverages, and our gross margin's a lot better. But for some investors, that there's a line in the sand, and it doesn't matter. If it's a liquid that you consume as a beverage, like it's not a sauce, they're not interested. It doesn't matter how good you are in those three camps. But we've certainly tried our darndest to, to make people look past the category. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe this is a tough question to answer because I guess you never quite know if and when you would exit. But I've had on the show entrepreneurs that, you know, don't want to raise, for example, a ton of money and some that, you know, end up do raising a ton of money. How do you think when it comes to like your like trajectory per se on the fundraising side, how do you think about this in terms of how much you want to raise from like outside capital? Some of it's a necessity, right? Like we, we are not a profitable business today. We weren't a profitable business last year. Could we be a profitable business next year? Maybe. So some of that is just a necessity of, okay, there's only so much debt you can get a hold of as a beverage business. So what's left is raising equity. I will say for me, that question depends on kind of what, what an entrepreneur's priorities are. So I'll say this. One, I think we have proven this, that kind of Ourobora exists to be in the world. Like we've, we've seen the feedback from consumers. We've seen how we play into their everyday lives. And as a result, it feels like, okay, first and foremost, uh, we would like to build this brand such that it exists in 50 plus years, which there are plenty of beverages that have exited and then don't exist a few years thereafter. You just saw actually Mark Rampola, I just mentioned his name, he just bought back Zico Coconut Water. It's getting discontinued by Coke. So there's plenty of outrageously successful beverage companies where investors all make a lot of money and consumers like the product, and then it still gets discontinued by one of the world's largest companies. So for us, I would say uniquely, yes, I, I want this product to be here in 50 plus years. Second most, that first fundraise, I raised $200,000 from a number of blood relatives. If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, that's not far off from my family. I'm from a very large Greek family. 
I had six different cousins invest, in-laws, parents, all four of my siblings, aunts, uncles, you name it, they're on our cap table. And yeah, I have like a duty to make sure they get their money back because frankly, I don't want a bunch of awkward Thanksgivings. So I would say those are probably the two biggest guideposts for me is one, how do we build a product that's gonna be here in 50 years? And two, how do I make sure my cousins and brothers and sisters get their cash back in their pocket? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, how do you also totally understand in terms of obviously when family's involved, you know, you obviously want to return their investment. They, they were obviously, you know, the very, very early believers in you. And also, not that I'm not as worried about, I would like to return all of our investors' money. I'll just say uniquely, if they're blood related to you, they have a little special hold over you, where even more so, you probably are beholden to them. So not, not that if any of our other investors listening to this, it's not like I'm not working for you to get a return too. Just my, my brother can you know beat me up and I won't call the cops. <laughs> yeah. How do you think about yourselves in terms of like a, in like the actual like, uh, competitive set when you think about your space? I mentioned this earlier, myself and my wife Maddie were you know, sparkling water addicts. Of, we came into this product with a very clear idea of what we wanted. We want an alternative to LaCroix, Waterloo Polar, that we think is more interesting, tastes better, has better ingredients, has a, a packaging and a brand that we really care about. What I've been so shocked by is, one, the number of consumers drinking our products as an alternative to soda, two, the number of consumers drinking our products as an alternative to alcohol, as a mocktail, and three, the number of consumers on the opposite end of the spectrum that are drinking our product as a tonic to mix with alcohol. So that seems to be where consumers are coming from. And it's great because it feels like we can play on a lot of trends. Hey, we're a sparkling water to some people, we're a soda to others, we're a mocktail to others, et cetera. That is a huge positive. A negative being, okay, how do you how do you make your marketing fit all these different things to all these different people? And that's been a bit of a struggle, but we're trying our best. So all that to say, no, I, I you know, we're, we're certainly not a competitor of Poppy or Olipop or Vina or any of the prebiotic, probiotic sodas, because we're, we're not a functional product, but we find, yes, our product can play in a lot of spaces. That's really cool. That's really cool. What's one book that has inspired you personally, one book that's inspired you professionally? Okay, um, I will do two for professionally. I referenced them earlier. The Seth Goldman book is called Mission in a Bottle. It's, it's, actually a, it's actually a comic book. My mom would laugh at that answer. Um, you asked me for a book and I give you a comic book, but it's an amazing comic book about how Seth Goldman started Honest Tea with his, his old business school professor and kind of all of the things they had to do to get it started. And if you're a beverage entrepreneur, you should you know, be worshiping it as some sort of Bible. The second one I reference is Mark Rampola's book. His is called uh, High Hanging Fruit, Build Something Great by Going Where No One Else Will. Both of those books, I mean, I don't know what they cost, maybe $9, $10. They've been worth thousands and thousands of dollars to me so far. So those are the professional books. On a personal note, I would say this is a book that really affected me as a kind of middle school, high school kid. I've read it maybe five or six times since then. It's, again, a beach read of sorts. So you can read this book in, in two or three hours. It's called The Last Lecture. It's by a uh, Carnegie Mellon professor named Randy Pouch. He was retiring from the school and actually retiring because he had pancreatic cancer. And he gave one last lecture of what he'd want his students to know if, if uh, he could only teach them one thing for an hour. It's an amazing book. There's also a YouTube clip of him actually giving the lecture that the book is based off. And of course, you know, unfortunately, he, he did die very shortly thereafter. I would say I've gotten more learning out of that book than almost any other of what people should value in crafting their lives. You only get kind of a very short period of time on this big blue marble. Um, what should you value the most? And I think Randy does a great job answering that. No, that's great. I'll definitely have to check out all three. I really appreciate you sharing them. 
What's the best piece of advice that you've received? This one is more operational. And I think there's some irony to this in that I'm, this, is, this is a podcast. And I think often podcasts ask a lot about strategy because we're all you know, casually listening to them on the way to work or on a run, et cetera. But the quote, and I can't remember who it's from, was amateurs talk strategy, experts talk logistics. And I so enjoy that quote because there's so many days where I think it's just, it's kind of an easier thing to talk strategy of, hey, we should do X, Y, or Z, or this is the best way of going it. But a true expert kind of gets immediately past the strategy and into the logistics and the, the tactical know-how of how to do something. So I really enjoyed that quote because I think about it all the time. And it's, it's a great way to distinguish you know, good employees from great employees. It's a great way to distinguish uh, the wrong investor from the right investor. And for myself, it's a great way of distinguishing, hey, is, am I by being as responsible with my time as possible? Am I getting straight into the logistics to the meat of a matter? So... That's that's my my quote. No, oh, I love that. I love that. Amateur talk strategy, experts talk logistics. I think that's a great one. What's one thing that you would change when it came to the perception of maybe building a beverage brand? Man, it's my. I guess this is my third and final baseball analogy. So thank you for keep you know putting up with me. There's kind of a perception that in beverage, and in some respects to a lot of CPG, but in beverage in particular, that things are either a massive 500 foot home run or an ugly strikeout. And there's nowhere in between. And there's no way for it possibly to fall in between. And I think at Ouroboros, what we're trying to prove is, hey, you can build something really special and it can be a triple or a double. And it doesn't have to be a massive $5 billion exit or, or body armor with an $8 billion exit. Like there is plenty of meat on the bone and plenty of big success to be had with a company that doesn't sell for say billions of dollars, but you know, a mag- order of magnitude below that. And, and I guess the perception I'd love to change is if you're building something in CPG, it is totally okay to be building something for a double, you know, for like a solid base hit. I always say like, Look, it's it's the ninth inning. You just got called up from the minor leagues. Like, choke up on the bat, and you should be so pumped about a, a dribbler single because this is so hard. Getting to first base, like, that is just so challenging to have any sort of small win. So if you just get on first base, even with an ugly single, that's a huge win. So I guess that'd be one perception I'd change in the consumer community, in beverage in particular, is investors and operators both need to play out more real-world scenarios and allow room for nuance and allow room for, say, not incredible, incredible world-changing outcomes like an IPO or Coca-Cola buying it, but there is plenty of meat in between failing and that huge success. I love that. I love that. No, that's such that's such a great piece of advice um, and, and a really good you know, perception in terms of CPG, how it's not all for nothing and that you can still get a single or a double. Paul, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Mike, happy to chat anytime. On your podcast, you're off. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Paul. Since you're still here, I bet you enjoyed it as well. Do yourself a favor and head to Ourobora.com and try their variety pack. You won't be sorry. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.